You're listening to an episode of the C19 Podcast, a production by scholars from around the world that explores the past, present, and the future through the United States in the long 19th century. We are an official production of C19, the Society of 19th Century Americanists. Subscribe on iTunes, SoundCloud, or wherever you get your podcasts. Whether through the arts or criticism, historical or philosophical inquiry, the cluster of associated disciplines called the humanities has always been centrally concerned with tracking the human impact of human decisions. In the first quarter of the 21st century, this concern for ourselves, our history, and the world we inhabit together might be centered around one term, a term that indexes the temperatures, both literal and figurative, of our shared global situation, climate. I'm Doug Guerra, Assistant Professor of Literature and Technology at SUNY Oswego. And in this installment of the C19 podcast, we're talking to the organizers of this year's fifth biennial C19 conference, which engages with climate as both a theme and keyword for exploring the literary and cultural histories of 19th century America, with obvious ramifications and reverberations in our own time. In our first segment, Melissa Nydick talks to C-19 President Hester Bloom about the vision, ideas, and practicalities behind this year's conference in Albuquerque, New Mexico. I'm here today with Hester Bloom, who is Associate Professor of English at Pennsylvania State University and the president of C-19, the Society of 19th Century Americanists. And we're going to talk today about plans for the fifth biennial conference of um, C-19 hosted by the University of New Mexico in Albuquerque, New Mexico, next March um, 2018. Welcome, Hester. It's very nice to be talking to you. Thank you, Melissa. It's a pleasure. Um, I wanted to start out by asking you to say a little bit about the motivation behind um, this upcoming conference's theme of climate. Um, how did this particular theme evolve? And what kinds of conversations do you hope this theme will open up in the field of 19th century American studies? We felt a critical and ethical imperative to choose a topic that had relevance not just for 19th century literary, critical, cultural studies, historical studies, but also one that had relevance for our present moment. Um, recent events have really impressed upon us all, I think, the ongoing importance of the work that we do, both in understanding the past, but also in shaping the future and the connection between um, those periods and sometimes the continuities. Um, the, the present and the past don't seem very distant um, in, in many recent cases. We'd considered other topics, but climate spoke particularly both to the urgency of anthropogenic climate change um, or the Anthropocene, um, which is the period of measurable human impact on the Earth's geological surface, um, which has a strong C-19 connection on multiple fronts. Um, many people date the beginning of that period in the late 18th, early 19th century with the age of industrialization. It also has strong associations with colonialism, which is certainly a topic of study within our field. Um, and we also uh, felt that the topic of climate spoke to the sense of racial and institutional climates of civility and violence, 
um, which have been very much part of contemporary conversations, but which also have really important 19th century American prehistories. And we thought that the word climate then could cover really broadly, not just ecological and environmental concerns of the moment, but also um, thinking about um, racial climates, institutional climates, microaggressions, um, and how we can help uh, mediate and make sense of the present moment by our work in the 19th century. So that that really kind of connects up with the um, or leads into the next question that I wanted to ask you. Um, your comments about past and present and current racial and institutional climates um, really makes me think of our current political climate. Um, the past right year, few months, weeks mm-hmm. <laughs> have been very fraught in many ways. Um, um, both in terms of kind of ecological matters of climate, um, but also um, these a lot of these institutional climates, political climates. Could you say a little bit more about how you think concepts um, like climate um, and ecology um, give us traction for thinking about politics and also um, media um, in in the kind of contemporary moment. Um, how might we think about politics as a climate in ways uh, that help us to think about um, very, very recent events? Certainly. Um, the terms climate and ecology, when used metaphorically, um, are often taken up in rhetorical study. They're taken up in corporate culture. They become business buzzwords. Um, they have a, a, a wide application of meanings, but what they tend to refer to, they tend to be shorthands for describing uh, relationships, um, relationality between people, between systems, between entities within a system. And in that sense, the recent um, withdrawal that our current president signaled that the United States would make from the Paris Climate Accords um, marking um, the U.S. as one of three countries in the world to do so um, is a withdrawal from a, a an ecology, a climate of international cooperation and planetary cooperation. Um, the globe is not just composed of nations, of course. It's a has a planetary scale that doesn't recognize states <laughs> or nations and is not responsive necessarily to those borders, but is responsive to the actions of the people within those states. And so the terms like climate and ecology and thinking of international relations also has special relevance in our period in which um, in recent decades, the hemispheric turn, the transnational turn, um, other forms of thinking of uh, the period that go beyond national distinctions, that go beyond forms of state relations, uh, new materialism, um, planetarity, um, the various ways that critical thinking within the, the field has tried to find new climates, new ecologies, new forms of relation among them. And so, and thinking also of things like atmosphere in terms of aesthetics. Uh, it's a really capacious term. And the political resonance, um, especially in a moment in which um, we are told by a presidential leader that um, America should be first which again has special resonance for those who study early America. Um, when uh, forms of American exceptionalism had um, certain meanings that are uh, invoked by contemporary politicians, uh, there's a certain urgency for 
our work, our critical work in speaking to these moments. Great, yeah. Um, the, the concept of relationality brings me to um, the, some of the logistics of the conference itself, how we relate to each other in the field as scholars. Um, and I wanted to, to t- ask you to talk a little bit um, about some of the features of the C-19 conference, especially perhaps for those who haven't been in the past and aren't familiar um, with some of its offerings. Um, specifically, I'm thinking of um, the seminars, um, which C-19 um, started offering. This will be the, the third conference offering these um, seminars, which I think are really kind of distinctive and unique. Um, and so I wondered if you could say a little bit about what those seminars um, look like, how they've um, gone in the past, and what types of seminars um, might um, be offered this time around. Yes, this was a terrific innovation of the uh, program committee at the 2014 conference in Chapel Hill. And we've increased the number of seminars each conference subsequently. So I believe we began with six. There were eight in at Penn State last year, and we will be hosting nine seminars at the 2018 conference. And the format of a seminar, um, they are limited to about 15 people, although we've had some boundary stretching for all the best reasons, um, and give um, the scholars who attend the seminars the opportunity to work with a senior scholar in a field um, to discuss pre-circulated five-page papers in a closed setting. These are not open to general conference goers and give them an opportunity to, to form a cohort, to form a group with which they can uh, exchange work in the future, can put together panels in the future. For the most part, seminars um, have been uh, easier to gain acceptance to than other uh, portions of the program. Um, as you may or may not be aware, individual paper proposals, which we love and we welcome, um, do statistically have the lowest rate of acceptance. Um, and we would be delighted to accept them all, but that doesn't, hasn't been possible yet in our uh, conference planning. Um, and so for those who have, might be more junior, might be graduate students, might be, um, at different places or parts of their career, the seminars offer a chance for someone who doesn't necessarily have a cohort easily at hand with whom to form panels or who might be working in a topic that is, lines up perfectly with the seminar, um, to join a group of like-minded people. Um, it works similar to the, it's the intellectual equivalent of the common table that we've hosted in the last couple of conferences where you can sit down at the table and not have to already have a party of four (laughs) at at hand. Um, And so that allows us to um, bring more um, junior scholars onto the program, although not all seminar attendees have been junior scholars. We've had, I mean, last year, our senior uh, scholar academic, or rather C-19 Society President Karen Sanchez-Epler participated in a seminar. That's happened multiple times. Um, So it gives us an opportunity to include um, a wider range of scholars on the program. It also gives us the opportunity to invite 
seminar leaders who haven't necessarily attended C19 before, who may not be aware of what we do. The seminar leaders have come from other disciplines, from history, from art history, from visual studies, from various departments in cultural studies, ethnic studies, media studies, um, and allow us to broaden our offerings um, in that regard. Um, and so to bring more people into C19, to introduce new forms of scholarship to C19 members. So it's worked out beautifully. We get wonderful feedback from the seminars. Um, the, the only criticism we have is that they want more time with their seminar. Um, and, you know, I think we might have heard a couple of things about the fact that they're first thing in the morning. But uh, <laughs> that, that, that one uh, we'll, we'll have to work on. Um, and so for the upcoming conference, um, we are really delighted to have a range of seminars that um, discuss topics um, such as Pacific intersections or um, citizenship in hostile climates, um, civility and incivility. We have a seminar on feminist critical regionalism um, and the West. Um, we have one on indigenous, indigenous textualities. Um, and we also have a, uh, a writing seminar um, about thinking of different climates for public writing and, and academic writing, which is increasingly a function that many of us are asked to perform, to write for a public. So we have a practical workshop on how to do that, too. So it's a really marvelous range. I want to take them all. That sounds amazing. Yes, I'm very interested in that last one, especially. Um, in in the same spirit of that last um, workshop that you mentioned, perhaps, um, different ways of reaching different audiences, um, are there any other variations on the traditional panel format in the works for this particular um, conference or, or any other kind of new innovations beyond the seminar um, that people should watch out for? We always welcome um, roundtables in particular, which is just the half step beyond the seminar in many ways. But um, as I imagine, Melissa, your own conference experience might be similar to mine, in which I tend to have enjoyed um, roundtables more than seminars when people are speaking more extemporaneously or responding to a provocative question rather than reading uh, a sustained paper, which has its own fantastic place. But for a live format, it's nice to have uh, live responses. Um, so we really encourage versions of roundtables. Um, and to that end, on our submission system, you'll notice this year, um, instead of the individual paper and panel and seminar uh, three formats, we've added an other category. Um, so anyone who is thinking of new forms in which to present their scholarship, whether that be um, Pachachka format, whether that be a flash session, um, whether it be a performance or a workshop or um, a pedagogical session of some sort. Um, we've given space on the application portal to uh, describe that kind of setting, um, to describe that opportunity. And we would really especially welcome those. Um, we will look very favorably upon such applications, I know. Great. Um, I wanted to ask you one um, last question about the location of the conference. Why Albuquerque? Of course, as we all know, the specifics of site are not always the only or even the primary reason a conference happens somewhere. And yet, New Mexico offers a rare opportunity to consider one of the borderlands of mainstream literary culture in the 19th century United States. 
In our next segment, Christy Schlauriff, a postdoctoral fellow at Villanova University, discusses the significance and cultural richness of Albuquerque with Jesse Aleman, the on-site coordinator of the conference and professor of English and American Literary Studies at the University of New Mexico. Albuquerque and New Mexico seem so far removed at first from 19th century American literary history that it seems, it almost seems absurd to hold the C-19 conference here. Emerson never mentioned it. Thoreau didn't walk the city. Hawthorne would never fathom it. And even Walt Whitman declined to visit Santa Fe um, in the 1880s, though we did write a letter commemorating our Spanish element in our, in our nationality. On the other hand, it's extremely significant that um, the city of Albuquerque is hosting the C-19, precisely because Albuquerque and the greater Southwest were these formative sites for the formation of American literary history mid-19th century and afterwards. Of course, throughout the Southwest, Manifest Destiny was a reality and not just a puff piece in the Democratic Review. Um, and in many ways, um, scholars have pointed out that the entire frontier mentality shaped the formation of 19th century literary and cultural imaginations. So um, I think on the other, it is a, an extreme location for understanding how 19th century American literature shaped nationally. Um, I think the best thing about having uh, C-19 here in uh, the Southwest is the way it pressures us to think outside of New England um, and outside of sort of a Puritan cultural history, and instead to think about U.S. print culture from the borderlands, from the area that was once New Spain um, and also Mexico's far northern frontier that had an entirely different um, Spanish language print cultural history. Thank you. It's certainly it's it's a very different climate to use the uh, <laughs> the term than um, New England is, and um, I guess as as Hester mentioned, the the term climate is a very kind of capacious term that speaks to a lot of different um, areas of interest for nineteenth century Americanists. So we can think of climate in ecological terms or environmental terms. Um, we can also think of it in racial and institutional terms. And so I'm wondering if you can talk a little bit about how climate might be used as a keyword for understanding New Mexico's past or present. I like the theme of climate for the C-19 conference in Albuquerque and in New Mexico because our region has always been a study of contrasts in climate. Um, Albuquerque, for example, is on the northern cusp of the Sonoran Desert. It tends um, to be dry and warm, though we're also at about 5,000 feet above sea level, so we do get our share of snow. There's nothing like seeing environmentally a study of contrast um, like, high, like desert in the high snow. Um, the same goes for the entire region. Um, the northern part of the state, Santa Fe, Los Alamos, and Taos areas, um, receive a fair amount of snowfall. But the southern part of the state, um, known especially as the Jornada del Muerto, Dead Man's Journey, um, is nothing but desert. Um, the 150 miles that separate Socorro, New Mexico from Las Cruces um, is not named Dead Man's Desert for nothing. Um, Socorro is named um, Rescue or um, Sucre. Um, Las Cruces is the city of crosses. Between the two, 
is a desert. Um, so environmentally, Albuquerque and the greater Southwest and New Mexico are studies of intense climate, climate contrasts. Politically and historically, this place has always been a site of intense climate contrasts. Um, it is the site of the 1680 Pueblo Revolt. Um, it is, of course, the site of the 1846-47 U.S. invasion of the Southwest. It is also the site of the 1960s Alianza Chicano Movement for Land Rights. Um, so our political climate tends to also be one of great contrasts. Um, so the conference theme seems to me perfect for understanding the environment of our region and also understanding the past political climate. Um, we are also going to be enjoying a present political climate in the state um, that, as with most states, um, is under a sharp um, sense of contrast. Um, New Mexico was a blue state in this past presidential election among a sea of red. Yet, in perhaps the most ironic contrast, we are the state with the first and only Latina governor who is fiscally culturally and politically conservative. Um, so we are also still undergoing a tremendous amount of climate tension and climate change um, at this historical moment. Narrowing the focus um, to the institution a little bit, what should people know about the particular institutional climate of the University of New Mexico? The first thing that C-19 folks should know about the University of New Mexico is that it was founded in 1889, and it is the state's only public flagship, flagship institution. It enrolls over 3,000 undergraduate and graduate students, mostly from the region, and nationally, it's one of only a handful of officially designated Hispanic-serving institutions that's also a Carnegie-designated very high research institution. So we're a very unique public university in um, the Southwest. Um, next, what folks should know is that it has always had fair weather when it comes to American literary studies and American literary history. Um, Leon Howard, for example, the uh, Melville biographer, um, closed his career at the University of New Mexico and donated his books to the English department to launch the Leon Howard Memorial Library, which the University of New Mexico's English department still enjoys. Um, the University of New Mexico also holds um, and publishes American Literary Realism, the only peer-reviewed journal um, that focuses on realism and naturalism. And more recently, it's been the site of revisionist literary studies by way of the Recovering the U.S. Hispanic Literary Heritage Project. Um, so... As a site in and of itself, the campus intellectually has um, some great ways of thinking about the 19th century. Politically, and in terms of the campus climate, again, the C-19 folks are walking into a wonderfully engaged historical moment on campus. Um, as with most campuses across the country, the University of New Mexico student population didn't take well to the new presidency. The campus has seen its share of recent um, relatively peaceful large protests against so-called alt-right pundits. Our students and to some extent the administration have mobilized around affirming the sanctuary of our campus and its student body. And recently, the university is weathering pressure from native-led student groups to change the university's official seal, which features a conquistador on the one hand and an American pioneer on the other. 
two embodiments, of course, of the region's history of settler colonialism and its related legacy of violence, diaspora, racism, and dispossession. All inclement weather, to be sure, on campus. But right now, the climate at the University of New Mexico and its greater community is as politically charged um, as it as other campuses are across the country. Nice. Um, what kinds of special events will be featured at this conference? One of the um, unique special events we'll be holding is a pre-conference kickoff, which will be a meet and greet reception on Wednesday night, the night before the conference officially starts at the Indian Pueblo Cultural Center. The reception will include light fare, drinks, and a scheduled native dance at Albuquerque's premier museum and cultural center um, that represents the 19 Pueblos of New Mexico. The event will be catered by the center's Pueblo Harvest Cafe, which specializes in cross-culinary food. So if folks arrive early, that will be one of the premier um, events for um, that'll kick off C-19. During the conference, there will be a couple of receptions, including the return of the Scholars of Color reception, which C-19 launched at its 2016 meeting at Penn State. And I'm currently working on plans to host an informational luncheon at the University of New Mexico's Center for Southwest Research as a way of highlighting the 19th century archival holdings um, in the center's collection, including early Spanish language documents, a large dime novel collection, and historical material on westward expansion, indigenous studies, and New Mexico's long journey into statehood. That sounds great. That's something definitely to look forward to for conference participants. I I agree. Um, Do you have any particular recommendations for (laughs) conference participants in terms of like local activities or museums that they might visit during the conference? Um, Anything particularly related to the conference theme of climate or entirely unrelated to that theme? I do. My first recommendation for conference goers um, is that they should attend as many sessions as seminars as possible (laughs) so that presenters aren't left talking to a room full of crickets. That said, I would also recommend that attendees walk the UNM campus and visit Zimmerman Library and its Center for Southwest Studies to research the rich resources we have on hand. Culturally, attendees should visit the Indian Pueblo Cultural Center, the Albuquerque Museum, and the Museum of Natural History and Sciences, which are all relatively close together and speak directly to the long cultural and environmental history of the region. And if any attendees are bringing their kids, Explora is a wonderful interactive science museum that would be a great break from the conference. A visit to Albuquerque's Old Town Plaza with its 1793 San Felipe de Nere Church, early 19th century adobe buildings, and Civil War era monuments would be like taking a walk back into the 19th century, right? with the exception of shopping and margaritas, while a walk through downtown with its restaurants, breweries, and colorful nightlife will certainly bring, especially for the more adventurous C-9-tiers, the city's climate alive for conference goers. Nice. Um, What are you most excited about? for this conference. I'm excited to have the conference in Albuquerque, which seems so far on the western margins of 19th century American literary history. Yet the region, its history, peoples, and writings are in fact so formative to the latter half of 19th century. 
I'm thrilled to see how folks will take up C-19 um, and the theme of climate. Um, it's such a wonderfully capacious concept, not just for the region, but also for our field of literary studies and our current political situation. So I'm excited to see what scholars, teachers, and students are going to do with that theme when they're here in town. And do you have any advice? So you mentioned going to as many panels as you can, right? And <laughs> avoiding the crickets at all costs. Um, do you have any advice for first-time C-19 conference goers? My advice for those attending the conference for the first time is to find the free food and talk to as many folks as possible. <laughs> What I've enjoyed most about the previous C-19 conferences, and I've been to all of them, is the general collegiality of our group. This conference has become the premier place for 19th century scholarship. Yet, my experience so far has been that we leave our haughtiness at the door. So, if you're showing up for the first time to this conference, go to where folks are congregating. Introduce yourself and make friends. Then, attend as many sessions as possible. In our current moment, the term climate invokes thoughts of crisis and the vagaries of global political will, an often frustrating willfulness whose negotiation we feel an immediate need to engage. In our final conversation, Carrie Brayman, the program chair of the C-19 conference, discusses the alternate modes of climate understanding that conditioned the term's use in the 19th century, a time when environmental worry may have felt less acute even as deeply related issues continued to raise the national temperature. This is Melissa Neidig again, and I'm talking to Carrie Brayman, Associate Professor of English at the University of Buffalo and currently Program Chair for C-19, the Society of 19th Century Americanists. Um, Carrie, thanks for talking with me today. Well, thank you very much for your time. Um, I wanted to ask you, as Program Chair, what excites you most um, about the upcoming C-19 conference? I'm most curious to see the kinds of proposals we're going to receive based on the theme of climate. Um, there's a freshness, there's a capaciousness to the term that lends itself to a wide range of topics. And I'm thinking, you know, from weather and climate on the one hand to different types of moods or atmosphere um, in terms of literary climate or racial climate. And today when we think of climate, we think of environmental crisis and catastrophe. But I, but how did the word climate circulate in the 19th century? And, and was it a term associated with crisis? So I'm really just interested in, in the richness of it. When I did an APS database search, I noticed that there were all these different varieties of context. For example, there, it was talked about in relationship to agriculture. But there was also a biopolitics of climate associated with health, with the notion of therapeutics and cure. Um, and there was also a lot on race and climate, on how climate shapes personality, both in an individual sense and in a collective sense, as well as a national sense. Um, there's a number of articles, for instance, um, on French climate versus American climate to define national typologies, which was interesting. Um, and, and for me personally, I did, my favorite discovery was a piece that the anarchist Peter Kropotkin wrote in 1899, in which he's absolutely blown away by American weather forecasting and its ability to predict disaster and uh, to save farmers, uh, uh, to help them protect their livestock and, and save them from financial ruin. So he thought for, you know, American uh, forecasting was really a sign of progress where, where human agency can mitigate um, environmental disaster. 
Hmm. That's fascinating. So it's a topic, a broad topic with a lot of urgency right now, but also different kinds of urgency um, in the past. Um, so kind of broadening out a bit from um, the particular conference theme of climate, I wondered what you see as some of the most exciting trends in um, C-19 studies right now, um, both in relation to the conference theme of climate that you were just talking about, but also more generally. Yeah, in many ways, the capaciousness of the theme of climate really matches the vast range of current work in, in C-19 studies right now. I think we're in a really vibrant period where anything goes. Uh, the parameters can be as specific or as strikingly expansive. It could be local and or global. I mean, we have exciting work still happening within the national paradigm, but also transatlantic, transpacific, and hemispheric. You know, there's some really great single author studies, as mm. well as, as comparative work and, and monolingual and multilingual. And also, I think for the audience of C19, we wanted a topic that would capture great work that's happening on the more formalist side of things. Yeah. And as well as the more contextually minded scholars as well, and also equally rich for scholars of prose as well as of poetry. And, and I think we found it in the theme of climate to, to match the versatility of scholarship in the field more generally. Mm, that's a great point. Um, so shifting from these kind of big picture questions to some more practical matters concerning um, the upcoming conference, I wonder what advice you would offer um, first time or even returning conference um, attendees um, in order to make the most of the conference? Right. I've been getting a few inquiries to this um, as well. So this is a great question. I think uh, first timers and, and graduate students included should think about submitting a paper for a panel as well as uh, for the seminars. We have nine outstanding seminars um, this time around. They're listed on our conference website. And I think that also, and I'll be quite frank, um, panels have a greater likelihood of being accepted than individual papers. So, mm -hmm. what, so for the first time, we've opened up a call for papers for um, individual panels. And if you're interested in posting one, please um, send your call for paper proposals to C19 cfp at gmail.com and we'll post it on our website and we have a few already listed now. Great. Fantastic. So you mentioned the website. Is that the main source of information? Is that where people should be going to find this information and to submit proposals? Yes. And the submission is actually embedded um, within our website at c19conference2018.xordo.com. And there you cut and paste your proposal. And as, as you'll see, uh, for the first time, we've also included other formats in addition to the traditional panel. So if people... If people want to have a book chat or even a performance or uh, a more a roundtable discussion, we have that now as a, as a real option for this conference. Fantastic. So a lot of diversity, not just in um, the range of proposals enabled by the theme, but also in, in the formats and types of panels available. Exactly. We hope so. We hope so. Great. And one last 
practical question. Mm-hmm. Could you remind everyone of the deadline for the CFP? Yes, um, the deadline is September 15th, uh, 2017. Uh, please plan ahead and start coordinating now in terms of assembling panels. And it's a great way to use our new um, website um, with all the list of possible panels to really uh, network and to meet other scholars with like-minded research. Fantastic. Thanks so much for those reminders and for giving us a better kind of glimpse, a sense of the the range of topics that we hope to see um, next spring at the C19 conference. Um, So Carrie Bremen, thanks very much for talking to me and hopefully I'll see you in the spring. Yes, looking forward to it. Thanks, Melissa. We hope to see you this spring as well. For more information on C19, the conference, or this podcast, please visit c19society.org. This installment was produced by Doug Guerra, Melissa Nydick, and Christy Schlauriff, with special thanks to our contributors Hester Bloom, Jesse Aleman, and Carrie Brayman. In closing, a passage from Herman Melville's 1855 geopolitical tale, Benito Sereno. Everything was mute and calm, everything gray. The sea, though undulated into long roods of swells, seemed fixed, and was sleeked at the surface like waved lead that is cooled and set in the smelter's mold. The sky seemed a gray mantle. Flights of troubled gray fowl, kith and kin, with flights of troubled gray vapors among which they were mixed, skimmed low and fitfully over the waters, as swallows over meadows before storms. Shadows present foreshadowing deeper shadows to come. Thank you for listening to the C19 Podcast. Enjoyed this episode? Have thoughts? Use the hashtag C19Podcast or get in touch with us at c19podcast at gmail.com. Have an idea for an episode? Check out our CFP on the C19 website for more details on submitting a proposal.